0: Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. Well, before we get into today's topic of the canonization of the New Testament, and it will be an exciting topic to discuss, I couldn't start the show without briefly discussing a few items in the news this week. And the relevant items that I think cannot be skipped over First of all, Obama recently spoke to Planned Parenthood and he addressed this organization. It's the first time that a president in the United States has done that. And similarly this week, the abortion pill was made available over the counter to 15-year-olds. Now not even considering the dangerous effects of that pill or the reality that those 15-year-olds couldn't get an ear piercing without their parents' approval or a driver's license. This is kind of crazy. This same group, Planned Parenthood, recently argued in Florida for post-birth abortion, which is killing a baby that is born. And this very last week, they were busted by Live Action, who does the undercover videos. I got the privilege to interview Lila Rose, who leads that organization. You can check that out at godsolutionshow.com. And this very week, Live Action caught Planned Parenthood officials on tape saying that if a baby is born after a botched abortion that abortion clinic workers should just flush the live baby down the toilet. This is insidious and it comes on the heels of Kermit Gosnell's trial for cutting through spinal cords of born babies in his abortion clinic. He's on trial for murder. All that being stated, I think it's incredible that a sitting U.S. president would address this organization and shameful to say the least. I'll state it again, I'll give $1,000 to anyone who can prove with a biologically accurate explanation why an unborn baby is not a living human being. And if you can't do that, why are we killing living human beings? It's a tragedy. Also, if you're pregnant and considering an abortion, either myself and my wife or one of several other couples here in La Plata County would love to adopt your baby. Please get in touch with us for more on that. Similarly this week, Christians in the army were told they no longer have free speech. This is incredible. The Department of Defense said this week, quote, religious proselytization is not permitted within the Department of Defense. And, quote, court-martials and non-judicial punishments are decided on a case-by-case basis. In damage control mode, they clarified, stating service members can share their faith, evangelize, but not force unwanted intrusive attempts to convert others of any faith or no faith to one's beliefs. Proselytization. Unfortunately, nobody forces others to believe in their belief system except in certain areas of the world that endorse things like Sharia law. And in this country, that's not the case. So it's hard to imagine that that's what they originally were describing. So obvious damage control but they really were trying to limit and curb free speech. It's just sad that they think it's appropriate to silence free speech, especially of those who put their lives on the line to defend our Constitution and Bill of Rights, including the right to free speech. I guess it's not just the Second Amendment that they're seeking to destroy. Finally, I have to talk about this. This week in Colorado, civil unions were passed, and this is part of the more countrywide discussion on um, equality in marriage and things like that. And I want to preface this by saying that diversity of thought and opinion is important and we should love in spite of differences and true tolerance requires that we accept those that are different than us while at the same time being able to maintain our difference of opinion and argue that in an appropriate and loving and kind way. That being said, I'll say that Marriage has always been equal in this country. People have always had the right to marry the opposite sex and they've never had the right to marry the same sex. That's been an equal right for all Americans. This isn't a discussion of equality, rather it's a discussion of definition. And the second that new groups are afforded this opportunity, by definition, other groups are excluded from it, setting up for the first time in history a real inequality and that is something that i think is scary i think this is a lot more of a red herring than an actual issue we should discuss the merits of the issue not go down these semantical roads that don't have actual meaning and it is an argument that should be had in our country and we should continue to have that argument with respect tolerance and love that being stated i think it's important to get into the topic of this week the new testament canon And the New Testament canon refers to the books that are included in the New Testament of the Bible. And I have to thank my wife, Erin, as I start this show, because she is the one that put these notes together. So thank you so much, Erin, for putting these notes together. The word canon comes from the Greek canon and the Hebrew word kaneh, which mean rule and standard. And it basically refers to the standard books of the Bible. And we're going to talk about the New Testament Portion today, So just a refresher on the historical reliability of the New Testament, the New Testament is the most accurate ancient manuscript. It has 25,000 ancient manuscripts in existence. There are 5,686 partial or complete Greek manuscripts dating from the 2nd to the 15th century. There are some disputed New Testament documents included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have been dated to within a few decades of the autographs, the originals. Around 10,000 additional manuscripts are early translations into Syriac, Coptic, Arabic, Latin, and other languages, And from the 2nd through the 4th century, there are 36,289 quotes from the early church fathers, which can reconstruct almost the entire New Testament, in fact, everything but 11 verses. So no other ancient manuscript comes anywhere close to this. Most of the variant readings among the copies are grammatical errors, and none of the variant readings affect doctrine. Critics, again, will make very much of very little in this regard. Bart Ehrman, for example, will say there are 400,000 errors in the New Testament. He's wrong. There aren't even that many words in the New Testament, and he recognizes that, saying there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Most of those variations are insignificant and not even translatable. In fact, 98.5%, if I'm not mistaken, can't even be translated into English. Erman broadly states that number and then gives well known examples to imply that there are four hundred thousand problems with the texts. He'll quote, for example, John seven fifty three through eight eleven, the woman caught in adultery, which everybody has heard, and then he'll say that's just one example of the four hundred thousand. Well In most modern Bibles, that passage will be delineated and there will be a footnote saying this is not in the originals. The fact that we have so many original manuscripts allows us to see what's been added and what was originally there. And so we know that was not originally there. And so it's marked as such. So it's not a problem for the Christian at all. We know that's not in the original documents. But Ehrman tries to make a whole lot of this seeming non-issue to advance his agenda against the bible no one believes every manuscript in existence is inerrant many fragmentary manuscripts have lots of errors but because of the huge number of manuscripts that we have we can easily find where those errors are and we can safely arrive at the inerrant word of god the bible we have today the new testament that we have today is trustworthy and reliable so that being stated let's go into some of the critical claims Critics try to assert that the early Christians cherry-picked which books would be included as scripture, randomly voted on Christ's deity, and so forth. So they try to say that this was all just a hodgepodge of opinion. This is nonsense, and it's more fiction than history. It's revisionist history, which again assumes its place of prominence in critical thought. A fictional example that has become standard critical thinking from the Da Vinci Code follows. At this gathering, t said to Sophie and Dan brown's book many aspects of christianity were debated and voted upon the date of easter the role of the bishops the administration of sacraments and of course the divinity of jesus i don't follow his divinity my dear teabing declared until that moment in history jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet a great and powerful man but a man nonetheless a mortal not the son of god she replied right teabing said jesus's establishment as the son of god was officially proposed and voted on by the council of nicaea Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that, Teeming added. Now, of course, this is fiction, but it mimics what's accepted among critics today. The real story, around 300 church leaders met at Nicaea to address various concerns, specifically the emergence of Arianism, which attempted to refute the deity of Christ, which had previously been accepted. They met to defend, not to establish, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And contrary to Brown, who says that it was a very close vote, only two out of the 300 there voted against Christ's deity. It's incredible how fictional Dan Brown really is here. And it's even more incredible that critics actually believe this fictional account and continue to propagate that fictional account. Again, Dan Brown is writing fiction, but many just take it as fact. And the same often happens with the canon of Scripture, the same types of criticism. So let's discuss the criteria of canonicity, because people weren't just cherry-picking the books that they wanted in the New Testament. The New Testament canon was not the result of theological cherry-picking, like the critics suggest, but rather it was the result of a process That went by meticulous standards by which the only credible texts of the New Testament were recognized and affirmed in order to protect the faith from a loss of its founding texts and a deterioration of theology. R.M. Grant writes in the Cambridge History of the Bible, the canon of the New Testament was the result of a long and gradual process in the course of which the books regarded as authoritative, inspired, and apostolic were selected out of a much larger body of literature. So the criteria of canonization were apostleship. The books that were included had to be traced back to an apostle, either directly written by the apostle or by one of the apostles' disciples who transcribed it from what that apostle said. Orthodoxy was the next criterion of canonization, and that meant that it had to adhere to known doctrine. So some of the Gnostic Gospels, which came much later, had crazy, insane theological fallacies and and crazy different diversions, and those were known to be false because they so diverged from the early manuscripts. Next was antiquity, and you had to prove that the documents went back to the beginning, and that's why documents that came later like the gnostics that came 100 to 200 years later were not included in the new testament finally ecclesiastical usage had these documents been used by the church From the beginning or were they later additions again tracing back to what was original Christianity and what came from Christ and his followers the process of canonization involved publicly declaring what had been accepted since the beginning in opposition to new fictional accounts which developed long after the time of Christ and this was kind of set or affirmed at the Synod of Hippo and then that was confirmed at the councils of Carthage not cherry-picking books that they wanted in there, but rather stating once and for all what was original so that new competing divergent accounts that were not original, that were not written by eyewitnesses, would not ever make it in. So that was a good thing that they did. So there's a lot of evidence for the early canonization of the New Testament. There is a lot of debate about whether or not the canon was actually set before or after the councils of the 4th and 5th centuries. I discussed those a minute ago. The Synod of Hippo, the Councils of Carthage, etc. The authors of The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown write, "...the limited evidence from the 2nd century patristic literature and differing assumptions regarding the nature of Christianity and the Christian canon make the investigation into the process of canonization a, quote, narrow path, roughly paved and poorly lit." There are reasons that a lot of these documents don't remain today to know how they viewed it. But we can still look at the evidence we do have and see that that was the case. According to some critics, like Bart Ehrman, the debate spanned centuries. And, quote, there never was a final decision accepted by every church in the world. Ehrman argues that the decision was not ratified until the Council of Trent. Of course, you're never going to have a decision that's accepted by everyone in the world. Kind of a high standard, but typical of Ehrman's criticisms. The reality is that going back to the beginning, we had a body of literature that was accepted as authoritative and other competing documents from later on that were not. And that was confirmed or affirmed as early as the Synod of Hippo and the Councils of Carthage. He claims, Ermine again, In a strange way, the canon, far from being definitively decided on at some point in time, emerged without anyone taking a vote, obviously failing to recognize that those votes were taken in Hippo and Carthage. Despite his claims, the point should be made that there is evidence that would suggest that the canon was set before those councils. The church fathers had an early understanding of what belonged in the collection of scriptures that eventually developed into the New Testament canon. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, and kdur.org online. We're talking about the canonization of the New Testament. I hope you're enjoying the conversation, and I hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of the show. So, competing ideas. Critics will argue that the 27 books that make up the canon today simply came from the competing view that won out over the others. Many suggest that the formation of the canon was only necessitated by competing views namely Marcion's and uh, Gnosticism, and that is not the case. The authors of The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown again write, today, most are less certain that Marcion is to be given as much credit. And F.F. F. Bruce argues that there's evidence that Marcion revised an existing collection of the New Testament, i.e. a canon that predated his. He writes, It can be argued with some show of reason that Marcion's canon was his revision of an existing collection of New Testament writings. In particular, that his apostle was his revision of an existing copy of the Pauline letters. The supposed competing literature for canonicity falls into three categories that would be the writings of the church fathers, which were never claimed to be scripture, the Gnostic literature, which came much later and was fanciful and crazy, and obviously could never be included. As original or authoritative. Also, Craig Blomberg, who's been on this show, you can get those interviews at GodSolutionshow.com, provides an interesting analysis against the Gnostic literature competing for canonicity. He writes We have no record of the Gnostics themselves ever proposing that any of their distinctive documents should be included in any canon. Instead, they tried to reinterpret the New Testament writings. In other words, even the Gnostics recognized the canon of the New Testament and tried to interpret that, not add to that. Their work of reinterpreting the New Testament presupposes the idea that they viewed the New Testament scriptures as authoritative. Finally, the last area would be the New Testament Apocrypha, which were always considered heretical and had only local support in local areas, and small areas. They were never broadly accepted from the beginning according to the criteria of canonicity. The church fathers understood the significance of a canon from very early on. Ehrman discusses how Athanasius' letter, written in AD 367, was the first time the 27 books of the New Testament were affirmed. Interestingly, he said before that they hadn't been confirmed or affirmed. He then points out that the debate still continued for centuries afterward. The implication is that Athanasius was the first to put forward the idea of the present canon, and before him, there was not any consensus regarding any of the books. He's wrong, though. The criterion for canonicity that the early church councils used presupposes an early understanding of the canon. Everett Ferguson writes, the organized church did not create the canon, but recognized it. Writers from the second century on repeatedly refer to the canonical writings as the books, quote, Handed down to us. The fact that the Church Fathers repeatedly discussed the New Testament books as being handed down suggests that they understood which books were historically accepted. Timothy Paul Jones writes, It mattered to these men and women that historical facts actually form the foundations of their sacred books. The criterion of apostolicity presupposes that the church fathers had an understanding of which books were written by the apostles and their associates. The criterion of antiquity also presupposes that the church fathers understood when the books were written. The fact that the author of the Muratorian canon writes regarding the shepherd of Hermas, but Hermas wrote the shepherd quite lately in our time, End quote, is significant and it suggests that the history of the apocryphal books was known. The criterion of ecclesiastical usage also supports the idea of an early understanding of the canon. It is notable that only a few of the 27 books were ever debated about. Jones writes, at least as early as the 2nd century AD, there were 20 or so books that were never questioned. The last great persecutions of the church included burning the New Testament. The authors of The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown discuss diocletian's edict in 303 which ordered the burning of christianity's sacred books and that presupposes that there was a collection of christianity's sacred books so it's crazy to say that such a collection did not exist not only did it exist but the christians and even their opponents and their critics who were persecuting them knew about that collection and probably the fact that they were destroying that collection is why we don't have more evidence of that collection today but again that very fact presupposes a collection Norman Geisler makes an interesting point that until 313 AD, the persecution of the church made it difficult for research, reflection, and recognition of the canon. This is apparently the main reason for the debate about the inclusion of some of the New Testament books, such as 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John. Despite that, it is astonishing that these books were disseminated over thousands of miles within a short enough time frame that as early as mid-2nd century, 20 of the books were not questioned as to their authenticity. The fact that there are 36,289 quotes from the New Testament, which alone can reconstruct all the New Testament minus 11 verses, shows that the early church accepted the same New Testament that we have today. There's also further evidence from the writings of the early church fathers that they viewed the New Testament writings as scripture and as canon. Second Clement is the earliest extra-biblical document from the early church fathers, which quotes the New Testament using the term scripture. Polycarp, who lived during the end of the 1st century and beginning of the 2nd century, used the term sacred scriptures for the New Testament, which is also a very clear reference to a collection of books. The author of the Moratorian canon referred to the New Testament writings as sacred, and this canon list dates to the late 2nd century and lists 22 of the 27 New Testament books that we have. The writings of Tertullian also provide remarkable evidence for an early understanding of a collection of scripture. First of all, he refers to the New Testament as scripture. Next, remarking on Marcion's treatment of scripture, he appears to point to a defined corpus of scripture. He mentions that Marcion edited the scriptures. He also defends the scriptures against Valentinus. And his writings against Valentinus seem even more clearly to point to a defined corpus of scripture. He even remarks, Valentinus, on the other hand, seems to use the entire instrumentum. And F.F. Bruce points out that Tertullian was referencing the New Testament as a collection of books by using that word instrumentum. So the idea of the canon, it was not until the middle of the fourth century that the term canon was used to refer to the New Testament. This does not mean that the church did not have an understanding of a canon. The authors of The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown write another expression or set of terms may have been used to communicate that concept that was later called canon. It is important to acknowledge the Jewish roots of Christianity. Everett Ferguson says that Christianity started with the canon of Scripture, which was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was referred to as the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Jesus himself referred to it that way in Luke twenty-four forty-four. So it would be understandable that the church would use similar terms when referring to the New Testament, as the Jews did with the Old Testament. And there's evidence of that with the early Christians. They used the memoirs of the apostles, the writings of the evangelists, and the writings of the apostles, and the fourfold gospel to refer to the collection of Scripture of the New Testament. Ferguson also concludes that the early church fathers used the threefold manner in reference to the canon. He writes, several second century authors refer to the threefold standard of authority for Christians, the prophets, the Lord, and the apostles. There is another theory that's been put forward by M.G. Klein that is also very plausible. This theory would explain why the early Christians readily accepted the writings of the apostles as scripture and why these writings were disseminated so quickly. This has roots in the Old Testament understanding of covenant documents, and there was a new covenant instituted, so like the Old Covenant, there would have had to have been an expectation that the new covenant documents would be written. The New Testament's authors understood Scripture. Paul refers to Luke's Gospel as Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.15-16. through 16. So you see right in the New Testament, New Testament writers referring to each other's works as Scripture. Luke also has references to the other Gospels in the beginning of his Gospel in Luke 1, one, And he uses that same term we already discussed of what's been handed down to us in one two, And the other church fathers use that same term. The authors of The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown point out that Matthew and Luke continued the biblical history of the Old Testament. They also point out that John would have known that Revelation was Scripture because he was receiving visions from God. He also warned people that adding to the book was not okay, and that was in line with understanding it as Scripture. Paul encouraged his readers to read his letters in church, which was a principle for Scripture. He commands that of Timothy. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and biblical evidence supports the idea that the New Testament writers were well aware of each other's work. So that would make them eyewitnesses of the developing canon. They would have had knowledge of which books were authentic. That's where we get the idea of the books that were handed down to us and the term, we received them. The early church fathers claimed that the apostles themselves gave them these books, and they were very confident of this fact. We discussed the fourfold gospel. Well, those four gospels that we have in the New Testament are the earliest, best, and eyewitness accounts and accounts of those that were eyewitnesses and interviewed eyewitnesses. And they never existed alongside other gospels. But whenever they traveled in groups, they always traveled just the four together, proving that there was this fourfold gospel from the beginning. Also, Paul's letters traveled as a collection, and that is likely because Paul himself kept copies of those letters that he wrote to the churches, and that would have been the beginning of where that collection started and then propagated from there. Finally, there is some new evidence from Dr. Trobisch, and the authors of The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown note that Trobisch's six manuscript phenomena support an early canon of scripture. Most significantly, the nomina sacra are found in even the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. These were used to transcribe the names of God, the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, interestingly confirming an early view of Christ's deity and the Trinity, and they followed Old Testament tradition. This standard usage most likely resulted from an original canon from which the other documents were copied. Next, Trobisch describes how Christians invented the Codex, or the book, the first book, which would have made larger compilations of multiple books possible. So the Codex itself is evidence of a canon, in a sense. So what we can conclude about the collection of books in the New Testament is that the rigid and objective criteria of canonization ensured that the earliest and most accurate documents were preserved against the later inaccurate competitors. The New Testament we have is not a group of cherry-picked books assembled for political purposes. Rather, it is a group of books that were set from the beginning as authoritative so that later editions would not throw that off track. And that occurred as early as the Synod of Hippo, which affirmed the books of the New Testament in 393, and that was ratified by the councils of Carthage in 397 and 419. The New Testament includes the eyewitness testimonies of Christ's life, the early church, and original Christian doctrine. The New Testament is the best-preserved text from ancient times, and it bears the fingerprints of God himself. For example, accurate history, fulfilled prophecy, science. It's incredible. So I would encourage you, based on all this, to realize that what we have today is actually what God intended us to have today, his New Testament. So read it. Give it a shot. Check out the book of John. It's a great place to start. And with that in mind, I would encourage you to come to Jesus after investigating Jesus to say, Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life. Please forgive my sins. Please make me the kind of person you want me to be. I accept you as my savior and Lord. He says that if you take that step based on the evidence, he will begin a relationship with you and give you an eternal life in heaven and an abundant life here on this planet, and a life of meaning and significance and purpose here on this planet. I'd like to invite you to First Baptist this morning. They're going to be meeting at the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street, and they'll be meeting at 1045 a.m. So stop by First Baptist and give them a shot. Get all our previous shows at godsolutionshow.com, and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. And I know I started the show off today with a little bit of a controversial perspective, I hope that you'll bear with me and tolerate some diversity on the show. A couple of weeks ago, I had a lady yell at me for being a Christian. She actually condescendingly said, oh, you're a Christian. And I said, that's very tolerant of you and a great example of diversity. And she had nothing to respond to. So even if you do disagree with something I've said today, I would ask you to be tolerant and to actually embrace the diversity that is so often claimed but so rarely demonstrated. And to realize that we can have real differences and love each other in spite of them and have a respectful debate about real issues, not just name calling, which is, by the way, an ad hominem attack, which many often fall to. So definitely get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about the show, positive or negative. And if you'd like to come on the show and debate any of these issues, I'd be very willing to have you do that as well. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that you'll find him this very morning, if you haven't already. I'm so glad that you're listening, and I hope that you have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye.